Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Today we speak with uh, Tim Richter. He's the president and chief executive officer of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. At any time in this country, 235,000 people are living homeless. What's the solution? Well, Mr. Richter has an idea. I hope you like what he has to say. Sean Simpson is the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs, and uh, we're bridging the gap between 2019 and 2020 with Sean looking at polls from 2019. Many were done for global news and then looking ahead to what may be polled in the coming 12 months. Ted Morton is the former Alberta Finance Minister and Executive Fellow at the School for Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He also signed what was known as the Firewall Letter for then-Premier Ralph Klein. Well, are we at a time now where Alberta is again ready for a Firewall Letter or perhaps something even more drastic with the Wexit movement? We'll talk to Ted Morton about that. You'll hear it. And Beth Kramer is a filmmaker in New York. She's living with stage four ovarian cancer. She just finished a book about her experience. The book is titled, Why Didn't I Notice Her Before? And it's a no-holds-barred look at her life, her family, the doctors who treated her, and living with cancer. Beth Kramer. And it'll be Beauties and the Beast, a year-ending segment with Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson. We're going to begin with one that we've talked about on this program for on several occasions in 2019. It has to do with homelessness in Canada. And one of the statistics that really stands out, I mean, this is the one that really grabs you, is that at any given time, you can find up to 235,000 people living homeless in Canada. That's a fair-sized city, 235,000 and I was looking at a story from Global News from uh, just a few weeks ago, just t- uh, reading from the story. There is someone waiting on a list for affordable housing in more than 283,000 households across the country, Statistics Canada says, in a new batch of data that also sheds light on what Canadians think about the cost of housing overall. The survey data, the first of its kind on wait times for social housing, shows 173,600 households, or nearly two-thirds, were waiting at least two years for affordable housing. Now, you take that particular statistic, as troubling and disturbing as it is, a disaster, as our guest says, and we'll talk to him in just a second. You take that statistic, and then you look at what we've been hearing from Ipsos polling, and we'll talk to Sean Simpson in the next half hour, vice president of Ipsos, about polling they've done in 19 and What they are projecting will be of great interest to us across the country next year. But that the number that comes to mind is what Sean and uh, Daryl Bricker from Ipsos have told us, and that is that 48%, and you've heard this many times now, 48% of Canadians are within $200 or less from not being able to pay their bills. So if you're within $200 or less of not being able to pay your bills, what does that say about the potential for you to become homeless. This is a big, big issue, huge issue. My guest is Tim Richter, and uh, Mr. Richter is the president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, C-A-E-H, 
He wrote a Globe and Mail opinion piece on Friday, which was headlined, Edmonton Treats Homelessness Like the Disaster It Is and Is Getting Results. So there's an upside if it's dealt with as a disaster. Uh, Tim, thank you very much for taking the time. And it's it, 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 this isn't about stepping over people who are lying on a sleeping bag on a sidewalk. This isn't about whether or not you should give two bucks or five bucks to somebody who's at an intersection asking for some change and holding up a sign saying they're homeless. This is a national crisis, or as you call it, a disaster. And the, the, it's it's getting worse. Can you put a face to, on, on this for us, please? Well, you know, it's, it's some of the stats that you mentioned are, are really interesting because I think uh, housing need and homelessness are starting to touch more and more Canadians or they're they're becoming aware of it in their circle of friends, right? So we know that over time, at least a million Canadians have experienced homelessness at some point or another. 1.7 million Canadian households are living in core housing need. 235,000 a year, as you say, are experiencing homelessness. 35,000 at least on any given night. Um, you know, this is this is a problem, as I as I said in the globe, that is as big or bigger than any natural disaster in Canadian history. I'm talking to you from Calgary. You remember the floods here in 2013? Yes, I do. Yeah, 75 to 77,000 households were displaced by that flood, right? All of them were found homes again or went back to their homes, except for the people that were homeless to start with, right, were living in shelters. Mm -hmm. Um, The Fort McMurray fire, the entire city was evacuated. That is still all of that smaller than homelessness in Canada today. So the word we probably would reach for first is crisis. Mm -hmm. But it's beyond crisis, you're saying. It's a disaster. And I want to go back to what you wrote in the piece and what you just mentioned as well. It is on the same scale or bigger than most of the biggest natural disasters in Canadian history. And as I look at the numbers, Tim, and look back to what I've seen over the last couple of years and what you can maybe project based on information that you have now, this disaster is growing. Well, it's tough to say, frankly. I mean, since, uh, so I call this an unnatural disaster. So in a natural disaster where there's a fire or a flood or some act of God, right, people lose their housing suddenly and quickly and as a result of that, uh, of that action, right, mm-hmm. like a fire or a flood. In homelessness, modern mass homelessness, it's like a drip feed of misery, right? It happens very slowly, mm-hmm. and it was caused by policy decisions and compounded by policy decisions that have been made in Canada, right? So it's unnatural because we created it, right? It, and it began in the late 80s and early 90s. I'll give, I'll give you a snapshot. So in Calgary here, in 1990, so Calgary has been doing one of the few the longest running point in time counts of homelessness. So in 1990, they counted around uh, 200, 300 people who were homeless. Mm -hmm. By 2008, that number was uh, over 4,000, right? And uh, what's happened since then, in Alberta at least, and what's highlighted in that piece uh, in the Globe and Mail, is that the Alberta communities rose to the challenge of this disaster and began began taking action to solve it. All right, let's talk about that. Let's talk yeah. about, and you point to Edmonton particularly. Yes. And, uh, and, and you point out that uh, Edmonton, uh, I'm looking for, the, uh, for your piece here, let me quote from it. In less than nine years, Edmonton has reduced overall homelessness by 43% 
and is projecting that it will eliminate chronic homelessness by 2022. That's two years from now. It's done so following an approach that mirrors local disaster response plans. Explain, please. Right. So in if every city in the country has a disaster response plan, every single city, and they all are follow similar templates, right? In in all natural disasters, there is a local leadership. You know, think about Nenshi here in Calgary, right? Um, you know, Nenshi needs an app was a Twitter handle because he was everywhere. There was strong local leadership, right? In Edmonton, we've got Homeward Trust, which is a, a charity, uh, has been running a really unique collaborative uh, style of leadership and has been rallying the city. So what are they doing? Well, you know, they, they, they're very clear about identifying that, you know, we can solve homelessness, like shifting the focus from managing the crisis to solving the problem. Uh, work bringing the right people together. You know, they're using data to make decisions, you know, just like in a disaster response, right? In a disaster response, there's a command center. Right. So, Tim, I, I, let me ask you this. So, if you're a homeless person living in Edmonton and you are... Uh, benefiting from this this new approach or this approach that Edmonton yeah. has had in place for some nine years now, almost nine yeah. years. What does that mean to you, the homeless person? What If you're in Edmonton and this program is in place in Edmonton or you're in another city in Canada where there isn't this approach, how does the person in Edmonton specifically benefit over the other person? Because there's, there's more opportunity and more focus on getting them off the street and into housing, right? So that one of the fundamental differences is that in, in communities where they're adopting an approach like Edmonton. They're able to move people directly from the street into apartments and providing the support. Now, I, I've got to note that you know Edmonton has made a 43% reduction over nine years. Mm-hmm. There still are a lot of people experiencing homelessness. No, but they're obviously heading in the right direction. They are, absolutely. So how are we treating homelessness then generically in Canada? Is it a patchwork quilt of approaches involving all levels of government, private yeah. and public agencies? Is it just really, uh, I don't want to use the word haphazard, but it's the first word that comes to mind. Well, it's, it's, it's a crisis or disaster that's lost its sense of urgency, right? Because it happens so slowly, mm-hmm. I think our response tends to lack the same urgency. And, you know, if you look at what's happened in Canada over the last 30 years, and this is true of every community, you, we realize there's people who are homeless, we create a shelter. We realize those people, some have mental health challenges, some have addiction challenges, some have, you know, are looking for work. You create programs to support them. But you end up with a bolt-on series of crisis responses, none of which are really focused on getting people off the street and, and into housing. And so the, the key, and Edmonton's doing this well, is making the shift is to say, let's, let's focus our energies on the things that'll get people off the streets or keep yeah. them from getting on the streets in the first place, okay. and then begin to coordinate this, this response system. All right, Tim, hold on. We're going to come back with Tim Richter, President and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Let's get back to Tim Richter, President and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Sometimes I think the world's gone mad. Uh, Tim, what do you do? Let me let me ask you this. As, as at the Alliance, what is it that you do specifically? How do you contribute to resolving the issue of homelessness at the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness? Who works with you? What do you do? So we do a couple of things. One, we spend a, a lot of time... Uh, lobbying the federal government and other governments to make the investments in policy changes they need. So a, a lot of work on the National Housing Strategy, for example. Mm-hmm. So we work with communities across the country to help them retool their systems and rebuild, you know, train their staff on the things it takes to end homelessness. We'll be 
working in over uh, 60 communities in, oh, in the next few years. Excellent. Are they receptive? Oh, yeah. You know what? We're working with 33 communities in a program called Build for Zero Canada that are focused on ending chronic homelessness. And among those communities is Edmonton, but there's also communities like Guelph, uh, Wellington, and Ontario. Uh, they've reduced uh, uh, chronic homelessness about 27% in just six months. And Chatham-Kent, Ontario, who's uh, another small community uh, just west of uh, Toronto, who's reduced uh, chronic homelessness there about 25% as okay, well. So that, there's a template. There's a template in place. Yep. We also have governments kind of competing with one another at times, and that's not, not going to help anybody. But mm-hmm. when you come to the older population, the aging population in the country, people on fixed income particularly, we're finding it difficult to be able to pay rent, particularly when rent in- increases. I spoke two weeks ago with a with a listener in London, Ontario, 65 years of age, who suddenly couldn't afford what he'd been, uh, his apartment. The rent had gone up, and he thought, well, I'll just go find another place. He lived homeless for almost two years until an apartment was made available for him. Are we going to be seeing an explosion, if you will, of uh, older Canadians who will suddenly find themselves living on the streets or living in shelters or, 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 or really looking everywhere for a roof over their heads? Uh, I, I think that is certainly something that the data in the federal data in shelters is beginning to reflect an aging of the shelter population, a growing number of older Canadians, 55 plus, uh, that are that are ending up in the shelter system. So it's it's absolutely something we have to pay attention to. And it's product of something you said before the break, and that's just, the availability and affordability of, of housing uh, that's appropriate to the needs of all Okay, Canadians so let me ask you this then. Are there enough apartments available? If you look at the communities, even communities that want to get involved, communities that would say, okay, we'll adopt Edmonton's uh, methodology here, but we just don't have enough uh, apartment units that are available. Is that a critical mass issue as well across Canada? Oh, I think so. It's You know, there's, there is not enough housing available that's affordable and appropriate to end homelessness yet, but there's more than enough to get started ending homelessness. So uh, a couple of ways that I I think about it. One is when people are waiting on a waiting list to get into housing, they're waiting in housing that they can't afford, right? So measures the government can take, like the Canada Housing Benefit, like a rent supplement that can help them stay in their housing. This is important for seniors, right? Like the gentleman you mentioned. Mm-hmm. If there was rent support available to them, he would never have become homeless because he could afford that change, right? Um, but the, we do uh, need to, and the, the federal government has a national housing strategy, which is which is a good start, um, but a lot more needs to be invested, I think, quite a bit sooner and focus specifically on people who are experiencing homelessness. Yeah, we can't just hand the problem off to bureaucracy because bureaucracy will simply delay any, or more than likely, delay implementation of useful uh, actions because that's what bureaucracy does. Yeah, it's well, very know, slow moving. It's like, you know, it's like trying to wade through molasses. This is an issue that requires input, assistance, and a, a resolution today. Well, absolutely. You know, I... Uh, I, I'm in my in my past, I was a, a lobbyist, and there's a saying in the lobbying business that there's no no problem government can't make worse. Um, and I think and sadly in this that's case, true. Well, in in this case, though, this is the value of that local leadership in Edmonton, where you have like a Homer Trust yeah. and a Mayor Iverson. That's where all of these governments things come together. Okay. Federal, provincial, municipal, and it's that local leadership that can help begin unwinding the Gordian knot. But most importantly attacking the problem with urgency like yeah. this is we have to have the same urgency as 
the people who are experiencing homelessness, who for them, every day is an emergency. All right. Well, to the people in Edmonton who are doing this, well done. Uh, good for you. And the rest of the country has to get on this because this is, as, uh, as Tim Richter says, uh, it's more than a crisis. It's a national disaster. Tim, thank you for the time and thanks for what you do. Thank you, Roy. Tim Richter is the CEO and president of the Canadian Alliance. Canadians in larger numbers are concerned about national unity issues or question whether there, in fact, is national unity in Canada. Will Wexit, once the move for a Western separation party becomes, a political party becomes a fact, will it gain greater traction with Alberta voters or might it fade? And what impact will the events in Alberta in 2019 have on uh, the province and on the country in 2020. Joining us uh, on the show to talk about all this, Ted Morton, former Alberta Finance Minister and Executive Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He was a signatory to the 2001 Alberta Firewall Letter, co-signed by Stephen Harper, and delivered to then-Alberta Premier Ralph Klein. Uh, Ted, thank you very much for taking the time. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, Good afternoon, Roy, and uh, belated Merry Christmas. Well, and to you as well, and uh, Happy New Year. And what kind of New Year are we going to to have? What kind of New Year are we going to have? Um, Let me start. If if Justin Trudeau wanted to, he could make it uh, pretty pretty smooth. He could make sure that Trans Mountain gets completed. Uh, He could uh, change uh, Bill C-69 and make it less, stop it from being the no pipelines ever bill, and approve the new... uh, uh, the new uh, Tech Frontier oil sands mine, which his own regulatory process has approved, but it goes for a cabinet decision in February. What if Justin you... Trudeau did all of that, I think uh, Jason Kenney and Albertans would be pretty happy, but I think the odds of Justin Trudeau doing that are slim. So what are your expectations on the on the last point, the tech mine? What do you think is going to come out of the cabinet? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a, it'll be one of the litmus tests. Uh, Mr. Trudeau has had kind of a balancing, balancing uh, contest between approving uh, and, and eventually buying uh, the Trans Mountain expansion, but vetoing Northern Gateway, uh, de facto vetoing Energy East, bringing in the carbon tax. Uh, uh, so he's, he's tried to cater to both sides. Uh, he's in a minority government now. Uh, he's under pressure to uh, not to approve. Uh, attack the new tech frontier mine, even though it, it has been gone through both a provincial and a federal regulatory process and has been approved. But the usual uh, uh, green uh, activist uh, group are uh, trying to pressure him to uh, veto it. How would you, Ted, how would you describe the mood within the province in these final days of 2019 versus what you might have seen and heard 12 months ago today? Well, it's, de- it's definitely more negative. The uh, the federal campaign was very disheartening for Albertans. You had three of the five federal parties campaign explicitly, really, against the future of any oil development in Western Canada. The Liberals tried to have it both ways. That's been Trudeau's strategy. Um, and then post-election, you've had basically some, some taunting from the leader of the BQ and uh, even the, pro- the premier of Quebec. Uh, in Canada has changed its name and moved to Denver. In Canada used to be uh, the largest Canadian uh, owned uh, oil and gas company uh, in Canada. Now it has a name that no one can even remember and it's moved to Denver. 
TransCanada changed its name to TC Energy and is doing all of its development in Texas and Mexico. So it's it's uh, the mood is not good at all. If you were to look at the mood today, which is not good at all, uh, certainly not anywhere near what it was in the, a year ago today when it wasn't great, um, how would you compare that to the mood in the province at the time of the firewall letter? Well, I think that's the difference. Uh, I think uh, the proposals that I and several others, including the, the former Prime Minister Harper, that we recommended to Premier Ralph Klein back in 2001, um, they represented Alberta utilizing all of its provincial powers in the same way that Quebec already did and already does uh, to increase uh, Alberta's sort of self-governance and, and self-dependency. Um, times were good, though, in 2001. Investment was uh, coming back in. Uh, employment was uh, growing. Uh, and when things are good, there's not much of an appetite for change. Uh since the uh, downturn in oil and gas prices in 2014-2015, things have been headed the opposite way in Western Canada. They've bounced back in the States because prices came back, but because of regulatory policy and and liberal government policy, uh, it hasn't bounced back in Canada. So uh, that's we're, we're pretty deep in the mud right now. And we really should say that it, this isn't just about Alberta standing alone. So what's the potential for Western alienation? We know it exists, but even greater in the shorter term, leading to a serious contemplation by Albertans and perhaps the people of Saskatchewan and uh, others in Western Canada to opt out of confederation. What, what's what's yeah. the potential it, for that? This might surprise some of your viewers in the East, but uh, everything I've read and heard uh, opinion and attitudes in Saskatchewan actually are almost harder and harsher than they are in Alberta. I, I'm not. I don't know if I can explain why. I think the effect of uh, federal liberal policies have been similar in both provinces, but definitely uh, Saskatchewan is is hardcore. I, I just think there's a growing realization that if if Quebec were treated anywhere any way near the way Alberta and Saskatchewan have been treated, uh, Quebec would have left long ago. And and then looking forward. Uh, if Albertan, or and I should probably add Saskatchewan, if, if, if Alberta and Saskatchewan, i.e. what might, was once called the, Buffalo, the, the province of Buffalo, if, if, if the Alber- Albertans and Saskatchewan had the opportunity to renegotiate the terms of our relationship with Canada, <laughs> we certainly would never consent to the status quo. So I think uh, it's important for, I think, other Canadians to... Uh, to realize, I think that's a widely widely held view uh, in both provinces now. We uh, spend a fair bit of time with uh, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan on this program. We've also on uh, three occasions spoken with Jason Kenney in 2019 and on, I think, two or three occasions with Blaine Higgs, the uh, Premier of New Brunswick. But if I can just stay with what's going on in Western Canada, specifically Saskatchewan and Alberta, and then focus in again on Alberta, what is the mandate that Jason Kenney has from the people of Alberta as far as dealing with the Trudeau government is concerned? We know that he went to, to Ottawa uh, about a month ago with five demands. Uh, but what is the mandate that, that the people of Alberta have given Jason Kenney as far as dealing with Trudeau's concern? Well, uh, Premier Kenney has 
the mandate to to challenge the status quo, and he's he's sent he's created this fair deal. He says Alberta wants a fair deal. He's created uh, this committee uh, chaired by Preston Manning mm-hmm. that. Uh, did two weeks of tours around Alberta prior to Christmas, and I think has another two weeks of tours. Pub, pub, these are public meetings where the public comes out and talks to members of the panel about what, how they feel about the way Alberta and Saskatchewan are being treated, and, and specifically whether or not some of the uh, reforms uh, that Premier Kenny has tasked the panel with, that basically the components of the old firewall letter, provincial police, provincial pension plan, collecting our own taxes. How do they feel about that? So he, uh, Premier Kenny, I think, has made it very clear that he will not lead a, a separatist movement, but he's made it equally clear that the status quo is, is n- n- no longer acceptable either. So he's he's trying to balance between, uh, to strike a path that I think strikes a, a democratic and accountable balance between those two alternatives. Ted, hold on, please. And we're going to come back with Ted Morton. And uh, what I'm curious about is is this. When it comes to the Fair Deal panel, by the way, you can send emails to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. Your comments, we can communicate by way of email, Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. Please keep the emails brief or Twitter at the Roy Green Show. If the Fair Deal panel uh, recommends the essentials of the firewall letter, and if uh, Alberta has its own pension plan, and if Alberta were to um, uh, have its own provincial police force and tax collection. Would that be enough for people who are in the province and folks in Saskatchewan? uh, Would that be enough uh, to make a big difference in how you feel about national unity? Uh, Ted Morton is uh, my guest, former finance minister in uh, Alberta, of course, and uh, executive fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of uh, Calgary. Signed the firewall letter, the so-called firewall letter, in 2001. Uh, Ted, when you hear that clip, and I played it specifically because I wanted a reaction from you, a response from you. When you hear that clip today, and this was a couple of years ago that he said that at a town hall, and when Albertans hear that, what are you hearing? Well, that, that uh, neither Mr. Trudeau nor the Liberal Party care about the future of Western Canada or more to the point, don't need support in Western Canada to elect majority governments, or in this case, I guess, a, a minority government. But uh, I think the your question about if if, if uh, the Kenny government implements all of these reforms, the so-called uh, Alberta agenda, the fire the firewall, will that achieve? Will that satisfy Albertans? I think what it would do is it, it, it would extend a national dialogue about the unhappiness of Alberta with the status quo uh, and the fact that if you know if Quebec were treated this way, they would have left long ago. And if we could renegotiate, we wouldn't rene- renegotiate the same deal. So hopefully it will create both a greater public awareness and but also some leverage, mm-hmm. some leverage to, to, to get some of the reforms that would, would constitute what Albertans would consider and hopefully the rest of Canada would consider a, a fair deal for the western parts of, of Canada, not just not just central Canada, Ontario and Quebec. I could play the audio for you of Justin Trudeau saying Canada was better off when uh, Quebecers were prime ministers. I have that one too. And and they just they, well, they, they kind of like circle at an air at, at an airport. They just they just hang in the air, and they accomplish nothing but other than to create congestion and uh, and and challenge. 
but they're there. And uh, what you say in unguarded moments or what comes out of your mouth when you don't want it to probably is closer to the truth than when you're reading or speaking memorized stuff. Uh, and this, this, is, this realization, this perception is what has uh, become widespread in, in, in Western Canada in the last uh, 18 months uh, since Mr. Trudeau said that and, and some of the actions that I've already mentioned that his government has taken. And that's why you know, 20 or 25 percent of people in Alberta and Saskatchewan are ready to separate now. There's probably another 20 or 25 percent that would never separate for a number of reasons. But their whole bunch, the majority is in between, you know, 50, 60 percent. They know that what's happening is hurting them, hurting, particularly hurting the young, the next generation of Western Canadians. Uh, they don't think it's fair and they want they want change. They want a fair deal. And I think what uh, Jason Kenney is trying to do is take that negative energy and channel it hopefully in a, in a more constructive alternative to, uh, to the, Wexit, the Wexit group. But if he fails, the Wexit group is there. Uh, you know what I find interesting? Uh, when I talked to the, the people of the Montreal Economic Institute, and we did that a couple of weeks ago, and we did it several times uh, in late 2018 and earlier, uh, earlier this year, they talk about the polling that they do of Quebecers when it comes to what they, where they want their oil to come from, where they want their energy. Primarily, they'd like it to come from Quebec's source, but they realize they don't have the resources other than maybe shale, and they're not going to go fracking. So two-thirds of Quebecers, this is the folks, this isn't the Laurentian elite, two-thirds of Quebecers say they want their oil from Western Canada. That's, I think it's 60, 65 or 66%. Vast majority prefer their oil to be used, uh, to be t- t- transported by pipeline, not by rail, not by truck, not by, not by ship. It, and, and it doesn't, and, and by the way, these people are, I think 79% of those people are people who voted for, for Legault, the current premier of Quebec. So what you hear from Legault, what you hear from Trudeau, sometimes what you hear from, uh, from Mr. Singh doesn't really seem to connect with what the average Quebecer is saying, but, you know, we don't hear from them very often. Well, I would, I'd like to be optimistic of that if, if that... Uh Public opinion in Quebec uh, is that uh, supportive of uh, of you know Canadian oil for Canadian markets. That's that's great. But it, as you just pointed out, it's not translating no. uh, politically into no. uh, what governments are elected. I, you know, the BQ uh, made a big comeback this past year in, in the federal elections in Quebec. Uh, Mr. Legault hasn't has been pretty adamant about no pipelines. So there's a disconnect. So I've been hearing, as you as you have as well, we have about a minute left here, that this is no longer the Alberta of Ralph Klein. This is a very different Alberta. And so I thought, well, if it's a very different Alberta, we may see a very interesting development on October the 21st, where we have significant numbers of liberals elected in the province of Alberta and perhaps beyond into Saskatchewan. Well, apparently, there aren't any. So where are we going to be, Ted, a year from now, or two years from now, when it's logically to be expected that the minority government of Justin Trudeau will be dismissed. Well, that's that. Then you've just brought in a, a whole other uh, a whole other variable, and that, of course, will be the, the leadership of the, of the of the federal Conservative Party. Yeah. Uh, there's no question that uh, Western alienation and unhappiness with the Liberal Party. Uh, energy policy and pipeline policy is going to play a large role 
in uh, the leadership contest for the federal conservative party. And at the moment, that still seems very wide. In terms of who might win, that's completely wide open. Okay. There's no question this question of, I, of a fair deal for the West and Western alienation is going to be a major Okay, I have to. In, in I, I have process. to. I have to jump in and stop you. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm in Ontario. Uh, it's just the clock. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Ted. Okay, well, I hope uh, we shed some light on uh, a complex but very important uh, question for the. You, you have, and and I will ask. I will ask you back very soon. Thanks so much for the time today. Happy New Year. You bet, Roy. All the best, Bye-bye. Ted Morton. Our good friend Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who was on the air with us yesterday, of course, um, made me aware of a little post that he'd written on his uh, on his blog, um, peckford42.wordpress.com, peckford42.wordpress.com, in which he calls on the uh, captain of Team Canada, the junior team, playing in the World Championships, to lose his C as captain. Because after the Canada lost to Russia six to nothing yesterday, I mean, I, that's I, I, the kids must have been devastated. But the captain didn't take off his helmet, as everybody knows in this country by now, as the Russian anthem was being played. And uh, so Brian, the former premier, says that the, he should lose the sea um, because there's a responsibility quotient that goes along with being the captain of a team. You're not just a member of the team; you're actually the leader, and you set the standard or you maintain the standard. So we'll ask Catherine, Linda, and Michelle for their thoughts on that, and I'll share mine. Now, on average, in 2020, 604 Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer each day of the year, 604. And in their lifetimes, one of every two Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer. My guest, Beth Kramer, was suddenly diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer. Now, a little background here. Beth Kramer is a highly accomplished filmmaker, director, and editor, and producer of independent film, also commercials and music videos. Her editorial work includes campaigns for Clairol and Avon, Victoria's Secret, Levi's, ESPN, and uh, the New York Rangers, of course, the National Hockey League. In 2017, Beth was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer, and she has written a no-holds-barred memoir, Why Didn't I Notice Her Before?, which documents her experience as a mother, a wife, a sister, and daughter, and patient living with cancer. Um, Why Didn't I Notice Her Before?, you can get it on Amazon.com and uh, no doubt at a bookstore near you. I read the whole book. I started reading it on Friday evening, and I finished it last night. And uh, it's an amazing read. Honestly, you find yourself uh, laughing. You find yourself angry. You find yourself uh, close to tears at times. I'm not a, I'm not a crier, by the way. But I, uh, it's an emotional read, and, and uh, it's so honest. Beth, first of all, thanks for doing the show. And uh, and thank you so much for the book, because as my listeners know, I don't talk about it much, but my wife died of cancer um, four years ago, you know, because I told you on Friday when we talked, so I'm not springing anything on you, but you helped me understand more about my wife's reality living with cancer than I knew while I was with her every day for the 14 months she battled the disease. So 
uh, you've done amazing. You've done an amazing service to people. I, I know you don't want to hear that, but hello. Uh, no, thank you, Roy. That means a lot. It means a lot, especially coming from your history. So thank you. Um, let me ask you this: Why the title of the book? This is what I've been. I've been trying to. F- I've been thinking about this ever since I started reading it. Why didn't I notice her before? I think I might have the answer, but why don't you tell us why you chose that title? All right, let's see if you're right. Well, three months after my diagnosis, um, I was lying on the sofa looking at a photograph that uh, had been taken three months prior. I had taken a a trip to cross-country with my son, who was 13 at the time, to see the solar eclipse of 2017, and we got into the car, and we drove all the way to Nashville, Tennessee to see it. Had to be completely in, you know, full eclipse, you know, 13-year-old. And, of course, I was willing to do anything for him. So we took this wonderful, wonderful trip, and we get back, and I found out I had taken that whole trip with stage 4 ovarian cancer. It was very aggressive. And I'm lying on the couch three months later, and I'm looking at the photograph of us starting off on this trip. And I'm looking at a picture of myself. I've always considered myself unphotogenic. But I see this picture, and my hair is long and golden brown. I have this tan, and I I look really healthy, and I look really attractive. And I'm thinking, why didn't I notice her before? Because, you know, I'm sitting on the couch. I'm bald now. I'm wrapped up in a a blanket. Um, My future is very uncertain. uh, And a lot in front of me. So I was just, you know, that's what came to my mind. Like, why didn't I notice her before? It's very interesting um, because as I was reading your book, first of all, you had a tremendous relationship. I not had. You have a great relationship with your son, just a special mom-son relationship. I do. Um, and, and as I was reading the book, you also went through some emotional stresses, losing your hair, which is a reality for cancer patients who lose their hair. You, you, it really, there were a lot, of, a lot of phases and stages you went through as that was going on. Yes, and, and, and these are stages that are, are common, obviously, for everybody. And I think, I think the hair is the most telltale sign of cancer, so I think it's extremely important. Um, it, it's a very vulnerable to, to lose your hair um, as a woman. Yeah. As a woman. I should probably start at the beginning when I do interviews, you know, instead of starting in the middle. I should start in the beginning. Take us back to when you found out how you found out, and why you found out that you had stage 4 ovarian cancer. Because one of the first questions people will ask is, well, how come you didn't have it checked sooner? Not just to you, just generically. That's the question that's asked. Well, how come you didn't have it checked sooner? Talk to us about that, please. Right, right. I think, you know, I feel so many ailments. Whenever I feel anything, like a little, like, crank in my neck, my husband will say, A-G-E. You know, just blame it on A-G-E. Uh, we're all aging, and that's what it is. And I never, you know, I'm not one to run to the doctor for anything um, that is minor. Uh, but I didn't have any symptoms. You know, they they call ovarian cancer the silent killer. It's really hard to detect, and women don't just go to the gynecologist uh, and have a test run. And it's not as easy as finding breast cancer, where you know you you've learned how to feel. Um, I had heartburn. The literally the week after I got back from this road trip I took with my son, I had some heartburn, and it was bad enough to see uh, a gastroenterologist. And I and I went, um, and she threw a bunch of Prilosec at me and said, you know, I'll give you a prescription for more. You're going to be okay. 
and I had to uh, had a little bump in my pelvis, and I had told myself that it was a um, it was something. I figured I thought it was like maybe a feces stuck in my my descending colon. That's what I told myself. Suddenly I was a, I got a PhD overnight. I don't know, and it probably had been there for a little too long. You know, longer than I would like to admit. Um, it hadn't really moved, but it was like this little bump, um, and it was solid. It was solid. It was like a little mass. So he said, right before I left, would you mind touching this? Would you check this for me? Just tell me it's okay. And she touched it, and she immediately pulled her hand back as if you know she was burnt. Um, and she out flew her prescription pad, and she sent me to get a CAT scan. And it turned out I had a 14-centimeter uh, mass besides that little one that was blocking my ovaries. And it had metastasized to my chest. Um, so at that point it was stage four, which it typically is for women who discover they have ovarian cancer, unfortunately. Um, so that's how I found out it was just a little bit of heartburn, which would have gone away and had it gone away and I hadn't seen the, you know, gone to uh, gastro, then who knows where I would be. You know, it could have just kept growing and uh, I never would have found out. Yeah. Before we take a break, um, what do you think of as you look back and I read all the, uh, what you wrote about the various doctors you saw, and uh, one in a clinic that looks like more like it was a falling down building, which is close to where you lived, and then the the uh, uh, the, the best of the best in Maryland. Um, when you look back at the how you were treated and how your cancer was treated and dealt with, and how the doctors dealt with you, what's the overarch? What's the uh, what's the main takeaway from how you were dealt with by the system? very cut and dry. There's not a lot of emotion. I don't think that doctors, especially um, in all these cancer centers, think much beyond uh, the first line of treatment. And um, I, I don't think that they necessarily see you as an individual. I mean, they deal with can- cancer patients all the time, and I'm sure that they um, want to distance themselves from being emotionally involved uh, with their patients. So it was, it was pretty cold, clinical, and you've had surgery, and you've had radiation, and you've had chemo. Yes, no radiation. No radiation, but you've had chemo, yeah. you've had chemo, and you've had the surgery. Yes. And you still have stage four ovarian cancer. Yes. And it's always going to be there, right? I mean, that's yeah. what, that's yeah. what I get from the work. How do you feel about about that? How do you because I have to ask this before we break because the sort of the subtitle of your book is a memoir about dying to live. Well, I was I was really stuck for about seven years. Um, not um, I, I couldn't find clarity. I had some tra- some emotional uh, trauma that I just couldn't. I wanted to fix. I could not stop looping. Uh, I was just burdened with regret. I had fear of my future. I wasn't able to just live in the moment. And uh, when I heard those three words, "You, you have cancer." Something like smacked me over the head, and it's like everything came into like this really crystal clear, sharp focus. And um, you know, the the I was so tripped up uh, about my future prior to this, and cancer just took the future out of the equation. And I found this like great freedom. And luckily enough for me, it fueled my creativity. Um, I'd been working on a book, a novel about a woman who had cancer, ironically. 
um, six months prior to my own diagnosis, and I didn't have enough material. It, was, it just wasn't coming out. It wasn't authentic. I didn't have the material to write this book. It turned out I was my own character, and then everything was handed to me on a silver platter, all the material. And I walked through my cancer being my character and, and using it all for research, essentially, for this novel that was braided into a memoir. So for me, a lot of good came out of it. Uh, and uh, surprisingly enough, I found out like I, I became this like comedian overnight. Uh, the book was very funny, as as you read. Mm-hmm. Um, everything just became very ironic, and and I found a lot of humor in the absurdity yeah. of it all. It's not what I expected. I mean, I, I had an idea what it was because I, I knew about the book, but as I read it, I just became more and more uh, involved. I became more and more involved with your life as I was reading the book. We'll come back with uh, Beth Kramer. Her book is Why Didn't I Notice Her Before? My guest is Beth Kramer. Her book is Why Didn't I Notice Her Before? A memoir about dying to live. And uh, Beth is living with stage four ovarian cancer. Before I ask you about relationships, and we have about four minutes here. Time goes by so fast. Uh, I have so many questions for you. You were very careful, Beth, about what treatments you were going to follow. You didn't immediately agree to chemotherapy, uh, but you did have the surgery and the chemo. What was that like for you to decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to allow it happen to you? I know you, you had uh, some uh, communication with a, with a woman who was also uh, dealing with uh, very serious and advanced cancer, which was helpful to you. But how did you go about deciding what you would and wouldn't have done? I think, you know, initially I had visions of doing something uh, alternative, and I did a little bit of research. Um, I don't even know why. I mean, I come from a, a traditional background. Um, my, my sisters and my mother uh, w- would have killed me before I died. <laughs> I should have chosen not to go the standard protocol of, uh, you know, surgery and chemotherapy. And, and ultimately that was the right choice, no matter what. There, there are no... There are no promises in, in doing a, a ju- inducing or doing any kind of holistic medicine. In, integrative, yes, um, integrating things uh, like acupuncture and massage, which I did. Uh, but and ultimately, it was just easier, truthfully, to show up and get taken, have an infusion. Um, do, do the, it just took a lot of the work out of it for me. I really did just have to show up. Uh, and so ultimately, I think it was because of my, my mom, my mm-hmm. sisters, my husband, and my child, my father. You know, I, I had to fight for them, and I wasn't willing, ultimately, to risk okay, let's talk, it. Okay, let's, let's talk about your family. Let's talk about what the cancer has done as far as solidifying, uh, challenging, making stronger, the, the, the very intimate relationships that you have, your husband, your, your son, your sisters, your mother, your sisters and your mother are there for you uh, constantly. I mean, you have a very tight family that you grew up with. What, how did it affect your, your relationships? Yeah, it's, it's funny. My mom is still in shock. I, you know, four sister, I have three sisters, and I'm the youngest, and it was her most very reserved private daughter who writes this tell-all book, um, and so I think it, it was quite a surprise that I was able to just, like, unleash everything I was thinking onto the page. And it's, super, it's very difficult. It's challenging. You know, I did not intend to write a memoir. Um, and, and I was very apprehensive about publishing it, actually, even though I had intended to. You know, you have to be, it's, it's tricky. You, you, you want to protect the people you love, and yet, you know, everyone has flaws, and everyone's a part of the story. It certainly 
the bonds that I have with my immediate family are extremely tight. It's it's one of the definitely one of the various themes in the book. Uh, the first the first um, draft I wrote had my husband didn't show up in a lot of the pages, and I'd have the person reading it say, "Where is he? Where is he during all of this?" Uh, and and that has its own story. Uh, I wanted to protect my husband and my son from seeing the the nitty-gritty of it, the daily um, infusions when I would go for them, and I'd go to Washington, D.C., where I lived in New York. Um, so my sisters and my mom scooped me up, and I went to Washington to be in their vicinity to have right. that happen. But it was hard. I mean, you know, my son, who's a relu- very reluctant reader, uh, uh, you know, as I was writing this book, this was going to be the book he was going to read. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry I have to do this to you, but oh, we, yeah. we've reached the end of the time because oh. of the clock. But uh, our, our listeners who buy your book are going to be able to read about the relationship and, and the strength of the relationship with your family and read about all your experiences. I recommend this book for anybody, and particularly if cancer is a part of your life. Why didn't I notice her before? A memoir about dying to live. I'll ask you back, Beth. Thanks for the time today. All the very best to you. Take good care. Okay. Beth Kramer. And uh, it is one heck of a book to read. All right. To wrap things up for 2019, what better way than to bring in Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, and Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament. Uh, Do you want me to keep saying... former part seatmate to Justin Trudeau, Michelle, or have you had enough of that? Yeah, well, it's entirely up to you. Oh, sure. Press, put the pressure on me. Hey, uh, great to have you here. Thanks for thanks for agreeing to do this to wrap up the year. We love it. Thank our you. pleasure. Always our pleasure, Roy. So let's start with, I've asked each of you to choose as an issue. Uh, that you want to speak to, that you want to address. And on the first take, you all chose something different, which amazes me because I thought for sure we'd all four of us choose the same thing. Um, But I'm largely going to stay out of this. Why don't we start with Linda this time? Linda, what's the issue that you chose, and what do you want to say about it? Okay, well, I sound like a broken record, but again, it's household debt, and for that matter, government debt in this country. But Roy, we've been talking about on your show forever that the cracks are starting to show. Well, now we've got personal insolvencies on the way up. We haven't seen this since 2009 financial crisis, and in fact, the numbers well show more than 102,000 households can't keep up anymore. And um, that's as of the third quarter, so it's probably even higher because I'm sure people overspent this Christmas as well. But $2.25 trillion in household debt. And uh, $1.5 trillion is mortgage debt. The rest is consumer credit debt. But here's what's interesting. It's home equity lines of credit, HELOCs, which are leading the way with these families. And, and we've talked about it before. With the real estate boom, particularly Vancouver and Toronto, people have used their homes like an ATM, borrowing against it. And we know that the Bank of Canada hiked the rate to 1.75%, which, come on, is still cheap, cheap, cheap if you go back to the 80s at 22% five-year mortgage rates. But the fact of the matter, these HELOCs, we owe $243 billion. Um, and we're just, we're, we're, the Bank of Canada is caught between a rock and a hard place, while other jurisdictions around the world seem to be cutting rates, including the United States. We're afraid to do that because that will encourage more debt. 
But I think what really worries me, and I'm not alone here, there's bank economists who are warning on this, is that is this just the beginning of something? Like the, the economy looks and appears to be healthy, but what's interesting, it's Alberta and Ontario, and Alberta's suffering. I, I listened to your show today. I mean, we've got huge issues in Alberta, but those are leading the way, whereas Saskatchewan and, and um, um, Saskatchewan and Quebec have the lowest insolvency rates. But again, so I, I look to 2020, Roy, and I say, let this be your New Year's resolution. This can't go on forever, so put your financial house in order. I know it's good. you can't say get out of debt because it's so deep, but make those efforts. Mm-hmm. And we've got to learn to live within our means. Yeah. Um, it has to happen. Because if, indeed, there was a real estate crash, which we don't see, we know foreign buyers are still buying despite the foreign tax, and we know we've had stress tests on mortgages, but if that ever was to happen, this could be a catastrophe. So please, please heed the warning. Look to 2020 as your opportunity to really put your financial house in order. Okay. Um, so that is Linda and very sound advice. And remember that affordability was one of the top three issues for Canadians throughout the federal election campaign. They wanted uh, Canadians wanted the political parties to understand that affordability is an issue. And I think that's exactly what Linda was talking about. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. What's yours, Catherine? Well, looking back over 2019, I, I just <clears throat> thought it was... Uh, the final and well-deserved uh, comeuppance of our illustrious Prime Minister, Canada's own Manchurian candidate, as I like to refer to him. Uh, we look back, and I think history will look back and, and really wonder what Canadians were smoking. Uh, maybe it's legal now anyway, but uh, when they elected this guy and re-elected him, albeit with a minority government, um, uh, you know, we, we saw an image that was false presented of this person, and it got knocked down very, uh, finally got knocked down as, you know, the emperor has no clothes. It often takes uh, funny things like a little kid to, uh, to reveal it. Um, when we saw everything from SNC-Lavalin, which I know Michelle's going to talk about, uh, when we saw the terrible way uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman was treated by this government, the fact that all, virtually all of the promises and commitments that were made have not come true. This government seems incompetent in terms of being able to actually implement anything, uh, and on and on and on. I mean, the, you know, the, the sheer weight of the stupidity, the faux pas, the stupid comments like, you know, the budget will balance itself, and, and on and on and on. Finally, the weight of evidence was so very <laughs> profoundly negative that people realized, basically, that we'd been sold a bill of goods in Canada. And I think it's interesting, because since the election... Uh, even though he was re-elected in a much more difficult situation, of course, Trudeau's been almost invisible. And he's handed off all these key responsibilities to Christian Freeland, like things that, frankly, you'd think a prime minister would be doing. So there's been a lot of speculation about him. Uh, and I know, Roy, you've, you've talked about how you bet a friend of yours who was a liberal that he wouldn't be around for I the bet him a hun- I bet him a hundred bucks in lunch. Yeah, in lunch. <laughs> sounds, sounds pretty good. Um, but it looks like you just might win this bet, because I think when the prima donna was finally revealed to be a sham, um, he, he doesn't want to be around anymore. And he's never been one to work, as we know. He takes more time off than pretty much anybody else we've ever seen. So I think, you know, looking forward, it's going to be very interesting next year, 
in terms of uh, what's going to go on with our government. And sadly, when I, look, when I look back at what's happening, we have a horribly divided country. Linda was alluding to consumer debt, government debt. Um, and we have an economy that we, we, we've known this is coming for a while. We're finally seeing the facts come through about how weak our economy is. We have horrible national unity, you know, fractures right now. Anyway, on and on and on about all the problems that we've had. And, and so it's, it's going to be, I think, a rough ride, unfortunately, in the next little while. And the transition from 2019 to 2020 will be only smooth around 11.59 p.m. on the 31st when everybody raises a glass and then you have to pay for it. Um, Michelle Simpson, what's yours? You, it's SNC, right? With respect to the Prime Minister, yes. In my mind, he was a fake feminist and still is. He claimed blah, blah, blah. But you know what? He likes to push his weight around, and particularly with women. So SNC-Lavalin, to me, was his Waterloo because he absolutely went after Jody Wilson-Raybould, and, um, you know, Jane Philpott came to her defense, and they were both ousted from caucus. And, you know, that's one thing. And I was glad that Jody was re-elected. Jane didn't make it, but as an independent. But the whole, and it is a scandal, because when I heard Trudeau say, um, well, if I'd known how it would have, it, it was going to work out, I wouldn't have interfered. That was once they pled guilty to um, fraud in other countries. And I was absolutely ballistic that they're still allowed to bid on government contracts here in Canada. So uh, he has no backbone, none. And whatever he says, I now don't believe. Do you think, and I have to ask you this one, I'll ask um, Catherine as well and, 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 and uh, Linda, and I think Catherine obviously just touched on it, but do you believe that there's a better than even chance that he will not be leading the Liberal Party into the next federal election, maybe because he doesn't want to or because the party really doesn't want him to do it. Do you think he's going to be uh, find something? I don't know, a, an office at the U.N. with an unlimited costume budget? I don't know. <laughs> I, I agree that I don't think he's going to he, – he's not going to be around for a long time. He's always been around for a good time. It doesn't look like he's really into the job anymore. Not, not, not that I ever had the sense that he was into governing uh, and, and in a way that we expect a prime minister to perform. I just don't get the feeling that this man wants to be where he is any longer. Well, do, do you remember, though, that, that the first ethics commissioner breach, which was the Aga Khan vacation, um, Mary Dawson, who was the ethics commissioner at the time, she actually said that he viewed this job as a ceremonial part-time position. I remember and that. I think yeah. he viewed it. He's never he's never worked. He's never been a hard worker in his life. Nothing he's done. He's always been a kind of a dilettante flirting with this and that. And of course, you know, when you're born into wealth, you can get away with that kind of stuff. 
But he always loved the parties. He loved to go and and you know enjoy the on the on the taxpayers' dime, enjoy the high life internationally, and so on. The way he was treated by international leaders uh, at these dues, you know, was was epic. Time and time again, he was ignored because he had nothing to contribute. But he he loved that the, the party stuff, as as Michelle said. You know, we're here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> and, Where have um, I heard that before? I think now that the adversity, first of all, his his image, his carefully fabricated image, has slipped. Uh, the halo's gone. He he doesn't. He's got adversity to deal with, and he's not good at doing that. No, so no. yeah. I think Roy, you're going to win that bet. <laughs> I'm 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 counting on winning the bet because I just I just can't see him coping with the West, Western Canadian issues. I can't see him coping with national unity issues. I can't see him coping with TMX. I can't see him coping with anything. Frankly, I think the man has emotionally checked out of the gig he already. Can cope. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you could have said it. You said it a lot better and a lot shorter than I did. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, and uh, Michelle Simpson, uh, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter, and uh, former Liberal Member of Parliament, and at L. Leatherdale is where you'll find Linda on Twitter. So let me just read you, because we are, this is, this is always the same thing with the clock. Let me just read you what Premier Peckford uh, blogged out today. Canada's junior hockey team captain refused to remove his helmet during the playing of the Russian national anthem. Russia had just demolished the Canadians 6 to nothing in one of the hockey games at the international tournament held in the Czech Republic. It is customary after every game for both teams to line up on the blue line, remove their helmets, and the national anthem of the winning team is played. There's lots of talk these days about transparency and accountability. Well, here is one place where accountability, the accountability card should be played. Barrett Hayton has lost his right, privilege, call it what you will, to be captain of Canada's junior hockey team. Captain is supposed to mean leadership, responsibility, leading, providing an example on how to act. Sure, Hockey Canada and Hayton have issued apologies, but in this soft uh, microaggression generation, the accountability factor gets lost. Here's a time when Hockey Canada can show the world that actions have consequences, Canada is always spouting its bona fides that Canada stands for respect, courtesy, and responsibility, a wonderful democracy, transparency, and accountability. After all, hockey is our national game when we show the world our hockey skills. And national character, question mark. So, Premier Packford says the C has to go from the shirt of the captain, Barrett Hayton. What do you say? Michelle, let me start with you, and we've got maybe a minute for each of you. Okay, I won't take more than a minute. I thought he was a sore loser, his explanation for why he didn't take it off. Oh, I was rethinking the whole game. I don't buy it. And there has to, uh, there has to be consequences, Roy. And he, he lo- if he loses his C on his shirt, that's not a big price to pay. Okay, so the C should go as far yeah. as you're concerned. More than that, would you say anything else should be done? To, oh, they won't do much else. Okay, but it stays on the team. Yeah, okay. stays on the team, loses the leadership role. Linda, what do you say? Okay, well, <clears throat> I agree with Michelle, but i got to tell you, this was a tough one. I did read his apology. He said he was distracted. I agree with Michelle. It was probably an excuse, and perhaps there is a sore loser thing. Um, but I keep on going back to what how they handled uh, Don Cherry, and I, I, I still don't like that one. I still don't think Don Cherry should be there. 
having said that, if Michelle, I agree, he doesn't lose. You know, he still has a seat there, but he's not the team captain because around the world we have to send the right message. And I agree, accountability. And so whatever the excuse is, it was poor judgment on his part. And, um, yeah, I okay. think we have to make a statement here. Miss Swift, you say what? Well, I, I think the sea has to go. I, I think we live in a world where there's too few consequences, whether it comes to politicians who lie through their teeth all the time and don't get called on it, uh, whether it's kids in school that, you know, keep getting promoted through grades that they, you know, they, they shouldn't, and so on and so forth. There's too much of a world without consequences, and I think it's a, probably a small price to pay for the lack of sportsmanship. Uh, I thought about it uh, quite a bit, and uh, I've also come to the conclusion that the responsibility quotient is there. He needs to, uh, the sea has to go, but at the same time, I, I'm going to say to you, show me a sore loser, show me somebody who's happy losing, and I'll show you a loser. Definitely, but but, that's, but that goes beyond that. No, no I understand. I get, I, get, I get all of that. I understand. I'm just being me, which I shouldn't do, but I'm, a, I'm allowed once a year, no? <laughs> Thank you all three for your gracious willingness to continually contribute and participate in the Beauties and the Beast segments. It's always such great fun, informative, and it makes it makes all of us feel good. You make us feel good. Thank you. Well, let's Thank hope we you, have a great Roy. 2020. Happy yeah. New Year to everyone. Yeah, Happy New Year. Yeah, and hindsight is always 2020. So, <laughs> <laughs> I had to be the first to use that. All right, we'll talk soon. Okay. Have a Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye bye. Catherine Swift, Linda Lauderdale, Michelle Simpson, Beauties and the Beast. Michelle Schlesinger joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network from the League for Human Rights of B'nai B'rith, Canada. And uh, I remember when we spoke with Ms. Schlesinger not long ago, and uh, I remember, Michelle, when you were uh, 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 testifying or speaking to the, to the uh, police council in, uh, in Toronto, uh, you said the Jewish community has been targeted the most in Toronto in the, in the past four years, the most highly targeted community in the past four years. When you hear about what happened in Hanukkah, in, uh, for Hanukkah in upstate New York, that must just fill you with absolute... Uh, horror and grief. It it really does, uh, uh, Ray. It's it's so cowardly, despicable, horrific. Uh, it it is beyond words. But you know, at Neighbors, we've always been concerned about anti-Semitism. We've always been concerned that these sorts of developments uh, would occur. That we move from words to action. Um, uh, very very unfortunately, and uh, that's what we're seeing right here in, in New York and, frankly, all over the world. It's a global phenomenon of increasing anti-Semitism. Why? I mean, that's the question we all ask. That's the next question we ask, or maybe it's the first question we ask. Why? What haven't we learned? Well, that's a very, very good question. Um, the, the why is complicated because, really, um, it, it, uh, it emanates from, from hate that comes from different corners, all various kinds of uh, uh, sources, and therefore the reason for it, the reasons behind it, uh, tend to be different depending on uh, where this anti-Semitism is Mm -hmm. coming from. So, for example, we've always been concerned, of course, about anti-Semitism coming from the far left. Uh, We've always been concerned at Benebris Canada about anti-Semitism coming from the far right. And we've been concerned about Islamic anti-Semitism. Uh, now we have a situation where we have a black accused person. 
So for some, the narrative, Ray, is all about uh, this this anti-Semitism coming from white supremacists on the right. Well, that isn't correct. Clearly, we see that that's not correct, and in fact, it comes from all corners. So when you're speaking about, um, and, and in fact, uh, uh, in this case, uh, uh, it was, it was uh, of course, targeting visibly Jewish uh, uh, religious uh, Jews, but when you're talking about or asking the question, the very good question as to why, it depends on where the source of the anti-Semitism is coming from. So in the case, for example, of the far left or, or the, the, the hatred coming from the left, it's often due uh, to the uh, boycott, divest, sanction, or the BDS uh, social movement and its anti-Israel narrative, its anti-Israel rhetoric, and that in turn leads to all kinds of anti-Semitic uh, incidents. Uh, frankly, uh, it, in, it here in Canada has led, for example, to the riots we've seen on, on the York University campus. Uh, it has led to the problems we've seen at U of T uh, in an effective ban, if you will, on Jewish food on campus. So really, again, the reasons that anti-Semitism has been surging really seems to depend, or so it seems, on the source of the anti-Semitism itself. And there hasn't been enough um, pushback. There hasn't been enough definitive response. There wasn't enough definitive response at York University, for example. There isn't enough definitive response from, from governments. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of, uh, of, 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 you hear a lot of words, but you don't see enough action. And this, uh, what, we, what, we're, what we're talking about today, that happened in, in New York, or whether we talk about what, what's been going on in France, where so many uh, French citizens who are Jewish and have generational ties to France have left because of the violence there. This is something that cannot, cannot be tolerated, and it has, to, it has to result in action, not just words by politicians and, and others who describe themselves as leaders. You are so right. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Ray. Uh, when it comes to the universities. Um, there's going to be uh, what, what's going to be needed is is something that includes more of a holistic approach as well. But when it uh, comes to uh, not just words but needing action, uh, as I said, I could not agree with you more. Um, it, it's it's the case that we need, and, and Benebrith has been advocating for it uh, for uh, quite a bit of time. A national action plan, and there is a whole lot of work that needs to be done in that regard. Um, we have, for example, uh, pointed out that we need better training for police officers uh, so that they can recognize hate when they see it. They can recognize uh, what is a hate crime better. They can recognize better what is racism. You know, I, I deal with the police myself uh, quite a bit, and we collaborate with the police, and they do a fantastic job. They, they work very, very hard, needless to say. Uh, but there are times when it becomes very clear that this added layer of further education and training is required. That's right. one, you know, one example of, of the kind of work that needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but in addition, uh, for example, uh, when we're dealing with um, uh, a national action plan, uh, there's all sorts of uh, uh, suggestions and important uh, uh, messages that Neighbors right. Canada has and, and Michelle. There's there's no time uh, there's no time to waste here. This has to be addressed, and has to be addressed now, and has to be addressed effectively. I thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, condolences on uh, on on the loss and the horrific attack, and uh, 
Uh, you know, uh, we stand with our with our Jewish Canadians and uh, our family, and we stand together with you. Thank you very much, Roy. You take care. Bye. Care. Thank you. Bye, bye. Michelle Schlesinger is um, with the League for Human Rights, B'nai B'rith, Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.